0: It's January 28th, 2008, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome again to another episode of The Candid Frame. Today's guest is Tony Dezino. He's a, he's a photographer and a friend of mine that I originally met a couple of years ago at the uh, Jay Mazel workshop in Santa Fe, and we crossed paths again when I started teaching at uh, the Art Center College of Design. And from the conversations I've had with Tony and a couple of other photographers there, I knew uh, just by the, the, the sort of... Sympathical nature of our conversations that he would be an ideal guest for for the show, and he doesn't disappoint. Uh, My only lament about it is that this interview could probably have gone on for two hours, because as soon as the recorder was off, there was just some fantastic conversation that I wish could have gotten in this podcast but uh, after about 40 minutes (laughs) I knew I had to cut it off at some point so more than likely you'll be uh, hearing from Tony again um, entertaining the idea of doing an episode this year with more than one photographer getting maybe two or three to sort of sit down in a round table and sort of discuss things but that's going to involve a little more technical savvy than, than I'm capable of right now but something to aspire to but but uh, back to Tony and and I think um, what's really interesting about Tony he's he's known uh, a lot for for covering sports, uh, Le Mans racing, uh, extreme sports, uh, mountaineering, the whole, whole plethora of things and you'll find out more when you visit his website. But uh, I really like the approach that he has, not only to making pictures but this whole sort of lifestyle involve, involving incorporating your camera into into your, into your the way that you see the world, in the way you interact with people, and in the way you make a presence for your life that is beneficial beyond making great photographs. I know that sounds kind of roundabout and I'm probably a little unclear, but I think you'll get a taste of it when you actually sit down and listen to the episode. So uh, why don't you sit back and enjoy our conversation with Tony DeZino. Okay, we just, we just had an amazing experience taking a look at a bunch of collodion prints, one of which was taken of you. And why don't you tell the listeners what happened and what that process meant to you, first as a, as a person and then as a photographer?
1: Yeah, it was uh, a turn of the tables. Uh, uh, my partner Mir- Everard Williams and I are, are doing a TV project where we've Launched a website that includes the concept and the usual stuff that goes to introduce your idea to the market, and um, it's called Exposure. To the show. We could talk about that later. But the important thing is, it was a point of credibility. We knew that it was critical to have uh, our images rendered as uh, on the website, so people could see who we are, not just read who we are. And and we both agreed um, quite easily that um, that that was. Um, something important enough not to just uh, overlook, especially when you're talking about setting an example for what your taste level is. So we we looked around and and, um, and uh, decided that Ken Merfeld, who's a, a fellow colleague at Art Center, is an instructor, in fact was was our teacher some 20 years ago, um, was the guy to do this. And, um, and so we introduced our project to him, and he was um, all in, uh, very supportive and um, and was willing to help us and the the stipulation was that it wasn't just a straight shot um that it was going to be shot on the wet plate collodions uh, on the glass plate and the eight by ten camera and and um when we asked him we realized that he was in the process of putting a show together using this process and and so he was completely booked so basically, I politely begged him, you know, to find any time, any cancellations. And and um, we even took the showing up on his doorstep over Christmas break once, just for fun, to see if we could... He could. And unfortunately, he wasn't home. But he got the idea, I think, after hearing that we had stopped by, that uh, that we were really uh, serious about having him do this for us. And, um, and so last week, um, he made time for us. And we went down, and we spent the day. And um, it was... It was profound. It was fantastic to turn the tables and uh, be the subject for a change, Um, and and um, not only watch how another photographer works, but to uh, to just to be open to how it would go. And as you've seen the results, um, it was uh, it was something more than I expected, and I expected a lot. And um, the essence of it was just that. The process of slowing down, and having to paint the plates, and having to uh, stand there with the old-fashioned brace on, so that you don't move for a six-second exposure—all these things start to play into uh, that you are in a different space. Even the studio itself was just kind of rustic. Uh, You may have heard Ken talk about how he has a a crucifix, a full-size, you know, ten-foot-tall crucifix in the back, so it. It, it, you know, Day of the Dead memorabilia around, and you you get a sense that there's there's a, a certain kind of uh, emotional content to the space even before you've done anything in there. So, um, I, I was really taken aback by how emotional the thing was for me. I didn't plan for it to be, um, and it wasn't like. Ken's a really warm and fuzzy guy who's all about, you know, dredging up feelings like, you know, you're watching a chick flick or anything like that. Um, but the interaction or the, the cooperation that we had was, uh, as he put it, total trust. I, I just respected him, and, and maybe that's part of the beginning of the, the entree into that kind of result is that uh, um, I wanted to do the best I could for him. And I think he, he felt very much the same way. Mm. So, <clears throat> you know, we were talking just before we started this interview, and I, I mentioned to you that he didn't say much. What he did say to me was the minimum. He said to me something like, you know, you're on the mountain, because, of course, I've got mountains in my background and, and alpinism and adventure. And, and it was as easy to sit there for a few moments because, of course, you're there alone. When Ken is painting the plate, he's not there in front of you. He goes away out of the studio, down into the dark room. He's at least in the next room, and you stand there alone with your thoughts for a good three, three or it seems like longer, maybe five minutes. And there's nothing around. There's no music. There's you know, you're just there with your thoughts, and uh, and staring into this big camera that's like a machine from another world, that, mm. uh, or at least from another time so when he comes back it's also kind of um, like I wouldn't say performance under pressure but it's a moment where um, you rise into the occasion where okay there's no messing about this plate is precious it goes into the camera the dark slide is pulled and this is it you're going to stand here for six to eight seconds without moving expressing yourself and um and I, you know, I I have to say it's it has to be something like um, live theater or something when you're on a stage in front of an audience except it's an audience of one so it's really intimate. And um,
0: you're on the you're on the other side of the camera yeah. most of the time. <laughs> That's true. You know? And and you're doing remarkably different type of photography. You're doing you know the, the motorsport you know thing the well, adventure, yeah. the sports. Sure. And and how do you what since this this experience is so fresh, and even though it's a very different type of photography than you typically do, what how did how did you look at what you do as a result of, of that of that particular experience?
1: Well, the um, the lesson for me, of course, is that uh, uh, it definitely influences my uh, interaction with people for portraits. So, I mean, if we shoot racing and and indie cars and sports cars and this kind of thing. Um, for example, the American Le Mans series, we're, we're um, going to shoot all the drivers for their print ed. So we'll go out before their first big race, and all the drivers will be there, and uh, we'll set up a makeshift studio on location. And they'll all come into the studio one at a time, and I'll do maybe two dozen different drivers. And in a similar way, you know, I may or may not have met any of these guys before, but I have to find that way to not only. Um, Get to know them in a sort of a short period of time, and I'm I'm a good people person, by and large. So I mean I have enough extroverted personality to find something about them that I'm interested in. You know, uh, if they're from Brazil, I I could speak some Portuguese to them. If they're Italian, uh, you know, I mean these are people that I'm interested in to begin with. So to answer your question, that intense experience of being on the other side of the camera um, really made me appreciate. The fact that even in a short period of time, in a short space, you can get very intimate, and and I think the the underlying things about that is is just that you sort of begin with this respect thing. It's not I'm not going to these subjects these the portraits I want to make. I don't I don't need to be anything like PR. You know that's for another photographer to make them. the portraits that I'm making of these drivers who are really kind of my original first heroes in sport. I've I, I always admired race drivers. Um, I'm looking for that something that is more um, dignified than just a cheesy shot with a guy holding his helmet, you know. Yeah. And so the way I kind of indicate that to them when they come in is that is that we talk about things in brief. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to find uh, when you don't come to somebody by taking something away from them, like a subject. If, if a driver shows up in my studio as one of the top drivers that I'm shooting, and, and, I'm, and I remind him in, in, in some way that it isn't just another photo shoot, it isn't just another day of stand here and give me a cheesy smile, but in fact there's something special going on and it's, it's interesting because you, you, know, you could run the risk of being like a really pretentious person and insisting on your self importance that, hey, don't you know who I am? I'm a big photographer, and that's not how I go about it. Um, there's, there's a thing, uh, how should I put it, a thread that runs through all the best photographers that I relate to. Um, and that is, no matter how big they are in terms of their standing in the field, I see this kind of, there's a thread of humility. So despite their recognition or their fame or their celebrity, the the photographers that I really respect have this sense of humility despite their standing or their status. And so um, I try to remember that in terms of even if I'm famous within motorsports or whatever and and people um, know my name by the association of it, which is fine, that's great, but I don't insist upon that. I, in fact, would probably assume that nobody's ever heard of me when I walk into uh, this studio with these drivers. so um, I have found that, that checking your ego at the door is really one of the, the critical things to having people just be themselves.
0: One of the things I often ask is I ask people about their beginnings as a, as a photographer and I was listening to some of the previous interviews and I felt like I was going for something and I just, just wasn't getting it. And I, I think I'll try rephrasing the question and see how, how it goes here. But when it came to photography, when was the moment for you, either the moment where you realized that this was something special that you know that I, I love to do or the moment that you realized that you know this is what you wanted to do with your life? Mm. Um, That's a good question. Um, I think
1: there's several related moments over time and the earliest I can recall of being aware of photography as an art form or as something really special was um, I was seven years old, which is uh, I think quite young to be um, aware of photography. I mean, I was looking at things like Life Magazine, when it was still great pictorial, and and, uh, and the, the story that ran was on the Olympics, of course, so being connected to sport, um, that was something I was interested in. I opened the magazine, and there's you know, uh, the hero at the time was Mark Spitz, and so there he is in the swim swimming pool, and it, it's a full-page, double-bleed, spread, extra close-up, telephoto shot, impossible image to make, you know, uh, of Mark Spitz in the pool in action. And it, it stood out. It wasn't just another sports shot, it was something special, and I mean, at seven years old, I was like, who did this? And the byline read, co Rentmeester, and co Rentmeester, I wouldn't know from anyone. But Something about it stuck with me enough that I, I was moved to find out more about him. I looked him up, and uh, and realized that this this guy had an art school background. He wasn't just another shooter. He wasn't like a, your typical, um, sports shooter. But there, clearly, I could recognize his work at a glance, even at, as young as I was. So that made a really big impression on me. Uh, turns out that this is Rentmeister is a guy who was an art center alum, and. Um, and I don't think that ever really left me. I think over the years, you know um, that that probably was something that I considered important to to strive for in that same um, if I was going to do something that was as special or or unique or artful, that following his example or going to that path of um, an art school, whether it be art center or someplace else, but more often than not, the people that uh, came into my life to influence me. In my career, had some kind of uh, connection or six degrees of separation from Art Center, so that's that's eventually where I ended up in school with, in fact, um, his daughter Amy, who went on to become a, a pretty well-known fashion photographer, Amy Rittman, mm. So that's one moment.
0: Uh, you're you're primarily a sports photographer, action and adventure. Tell me about um, what. What is it about that particular, those particular activities? It really, really, really appeals to you, photographically and visually, that unlike you know other work that's that's out there.
1: Well, first and foremost, uh, it, uh, some people are molded by their admirations, and others by their hostilities. For me, it's always the former. I I have. Um, without apology had suffered hero worship since i was a kid and you know if you're like the golden age is probably somewhere around 12 years old for me 10 to 12 is like magic because the world's wide open and, and you can still have you know yourself unaffected by maybe the rest of the things in the world that aren't so nice and, and uh, so if you have a hero it's kind of like that's really centered to your existence for a long time whether it be you know my friends when i was growing up were all baseball you know guys and football guys and i I appreciated that, but it was always, for me, something more, you know, to the adventure aspect of things, or the, um, for example, um, Hemingway describes four true sports, and it's a quite often, you know, uh, used quote of his, and he describes them as um, boxing, bullfighting, mountain climbing, and motorsport, meaning racing cars, you know. And it's really interesting because if you if you go to he says the rest are mere games. That's where that everybody knows that from. Um, so if you look at it, it's man versus man in boxing, man versus animal in bullfighting, man versus machine in car racing, and man versus nature in mountain climbing. So I think he was onto something there, which is that. Those who are the most committed, or totally committed, are are willing to do so at the, the risk of their life. You know, and if you're talking about, you know, all the other things are less committed. I mean, if you miss a forehand in tennis and the ball goes out by three inches, you know, you'll probably be all right. But if you miss the apex of a turn at Indy at 200 miles an hour by three inches. You may not be all right because you're going to have to suffer a consequence that's much greater. So there's the difference in, in that kind of definition. And for some reason, um, I felt that my heroes were closer to that kind of Hemingway idea that um, you know what others might consider life-threatening is really kind of life-affirming, especially if you're a participant in any of those things because uh, you get to realize that if, if you're interested in um, the idea that you have a brave heart, you know. The only way to find out is to measure up and to try it. So, for example, if you're a photographer and you like adventure stuff, why? Because you're outdoors and you're amongst people who appreciate the same thing. That's that's great because you have camaraderie and so forth, but you're still kind of a tourist or you're kind of a spectator. And in in my book at least, you have to kind of find your your level of participation. So, one of my um uh favorite sports of course is adventure sports which is this expedition length uh, team multi-sport race that she typically goes over uh, 500 miles in 7 to 10 days and it's uh, in far corners in the world and and, um, and so there's this you can't cover that without being involved in the sport you, you have to train so that your your skill level is there to, to be uh, amongst the, the competitors and be in that situation um, the I think it's really a matter of finding out uh, you know who your family is made up of you know your extended family I mean because if if this sort of thing uh, with adventure racing is a a traveling circus you know I mean I'll meet the same friends I have in Borneo that I'll see in Patagonia that I'll see in China that I'll see because they're they are I, I wouldn't say they're gypsies, but they're, they're people who have the same passions for this sport or this kind of adventure. And so, you know, we seek each other out. And, and in doing so, we have experiences that a lot of people uh, don't have access to. Mm-hmm. And so you, you alluded to it before, and, and I'll, I'll risk repeating myself because it's, it's worth it that how you access those experiences and those feelings, you know, you could have as a profound experience. You know, shooting what you are, whatever that thing is, Um, and that's the right thing for you. For me, I don't know any better way to access that experience. And if you want to call it transcendent, you know, something Mm -hmm. that's powerful enough to you that it's it's more than the sum of its parts. If you can access that or get close to that, it's it's very uh, powerful in in terms of its uh, uh, formative.
0: Yeah. Changes, yeah. I think one of the appeals for sports, I mean, you allude to the whole the idea that for a lot of people, sports is uh, expect, a spectator event. Yeah. And even for photographers who document and know the sport or have a passion for the sport, there is a sort of sort of separation. But from, from when I hear you speaking, when you were speaking about the photographer who photographed uh, the events regarding the Shackleton Yeah, Expedition, Frank Early. Frank Early. Yeah. You, you know, what, what stands out for me is that those people... Were all people whose metal was really tested. They were put into they're they're either because of chance or because of choice. They're putting themselves under extraordinary circumstances, challenging circumstances, and then having to come sort of come through it. Yeah, it's and and I and I think that people typically don't see photography in that way, (laughs) but I think to a certain extent you need to see it that way because that's that's when extraordinary images. Can happen is as a result of that. And I'm curious as to if you have an example of a time when you felt that you had that sort of transformative experience as a result of doing what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's um, exactly that. I think that, uh, um, you know, if you're looking up at examples like Hurley's a great one because he survived, you know, that that endurance expedition and, and the pictures of that. Um, have made it an immortal story. You know, if it's it's the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, survival story of expedition, you know, uh, in, in history. And so, if, if these guys are sort of early influences on us, you that, that's something that um, um, becomes part of you. Um, I think uh, in the sport of adventure racing. They say the heaviest thing in your backpack is your ego. And uh, that means that you can be super fit and strong and um, tough and all that stuff, but if you go around with a certain kind of, you know, arrogance about it, the sport will just, you know, hammer you. Because the thing that it's most excellent at is stripping away all these layers of ego. And um, if you're a photographer like myself who's passionate about the sport and chasing it, it there's nothing easy about it. Um, obviously, uh, it's over difficult terrain, so you have, to, uh, you have to be willing to pay a price physically. Um, and that's, that's sort of the key element, is are you willing to pay the price of admission to get into this space to make these pictures and do that to find the thing that you're looking for? Um, an example of a transformative experience well I'd have to say um, being on uh, Denali at Mount McKinley was was a good example of uh, climbing with gear and uh, cameras and so forth and um, amongst a great team you know I was with uh, four other guys who were just terrific climbers in fact I felt um, kind of like the anchor because they're all you know, super athletes with fantastic resumes, and I consider myself just a regular guy, but I've I've got, you know, the heart of a competitor, and and, uh, certainly um, you know, didn't want to be the weak link on the team, but nonetheless, you know, thank goodness for me that, that climbing mountains is kind of a slow motion thing, which means that people don't run up and down mountains. They, in general, <laughs> take one plotting step at a time. And so, you know, in that respect, I, I held my own well, which is to say I could pretty much put one foot in front of the other with, you know, grim determination. And um, and it's a curious thing when you go to the top of a mountain and one that's as, as high as Denali, um, that that's not the peak of the experience. Um which is I think for the uninitiated they think that that's the peak because naturally it's physically the peak but it's not emotionally the peak and it's it's the um, it's not even the the greater meaning of that kind of experience so when you get there and everybody of course does the pictures of the you know the summit and the summit picture itself is really proof it's interesting because it's just evidence it's like i was here you know and and yes, we made it. And and the crazy thing is, the crazy thing is, as you're coming down off that mountain, that's really when it starts to get hard. And it's in fact is um, a truism in climbing that getting to the top isn't it because if you don't come back, it doesn't count. Mm. So getting back down off that mountain was really one of the most difficult things uh, I've ever done. It was cold, and it was long, and it was hard. Of course, that's all expected. But you know, uh, there's this thing in in, in glacier climbing called post postholing, where there's snow bridges over the crevasses. And one of the reasons that you start in the middle of the night to climb on these things is that uh, the bridges will be hard packed frozen. But over the course of the day, even mid afternoon, they'll melt and uh, and uh, be vulnerable to punching through and falling. Well. <clears throat> We we got a, a hint that, that there was a storm coming, and we had to really haul ass as far as you could put one foot in front of the other uh, to get off the mountain before the storm socked us in for another couple of days. So uh, we decided to do a straight descent. So after 16 days of, you know, assaulting the mountain on the ascent, we came down in a day and a half, which is a, a pretty impressive thing if you ask anybody. And um, the trouble is that... Um, the conditions the window of time that we were in provided for an afternoon arrival on the lower glacier which means that we started reaching some pretty scary conditions and um, I physically was one of the the larger guys on the team um, and they were all kind of greyhounds and I was a Clydesdale if you know what I mean <laughs> and uh, so anyway um, we were strung up uh, on the rope for glacier traverse and uh, and wearing snowshoes and so forth and, and uh, I started post holding which means you punch through. So, if I was the middleman on the team, the two in front of me and two behind me, I'd punch through up to my waist or chest in this soft snow. And, you know, I could have hundreds of feet of crevasse below me and not know it because all I can mm. see is the soft snow. And so, uh, you know, the team would have to stop. I'd have to dig myself out, essentially. And if you can imagine, like, these big snowshoes around your feet full of soft, slushy snow that you have to lift up somehow and possibly through this hole you've just punched through. Well, it was exhausting, you can imagine. And uh, and I, I had to say the same thing every time, which was just... I'm okay, you know, because it was just like a mantra because I was I was mad as a hornet's nest. I was really pissed, but I guess it was just, it was at that critical point where I was, okay, I'm a 200-pounder, and all these other guys are like 180, maybe 185, and for whatever reason, the threshold for breaking through was like 200 pounds, and I just, I walked as gently as I could. I walked in the footsteps of these guys, but I was the one who punched through, and after, I don't know, 20 or 30 times, it gets to being pretty old, but um, the point is that all of those things, all of that that um, impossible kind of endurance to 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 get down and finish this trip, you know, you arrive at the bottom, and you realize that um, there were stronger, faster, smarter climbers who didn't get to the top in the same time frame with the same opportunities at the same mountain. And um, the crazy thing is that people. You know, you you're on your way home, and people are calling, and and they know you're about to you know get off the mountain. And so everybody wants to know, did you make it? And it's like the first question they ask you, and it's almost heartbreaking because yeah, of course you made it, and they're they're happy for you. But in a way, it's it's kind of uh, beside the point because you know the, if you made it or didn't make it, you know would they be disappointed if you didn't make it? You know. So, in terms of going to that mountain, suffering that stuff, and then making those pictures. You don't get those pictures unless you're willing to pay the price, and uh, and then the experience of it, of course.
0: well. Wow. <laughs> you know, that just you know you, that's completely analogous to the whole yeah. idea of just making photographs. I and mean, mm-hmm. this an extraordinary story, but it really is about you know we there we live in a generation that is probably has seen more images. Mm-hmm. Than any other generation mm-hmm. before, you know. Not too long ago, maybe, maybe, 50, 60 years ago, you know, people would n- not have imagined the tens of thousands of images that we're subject to in just a single day, as compared to yeah. to to what was back, you know, back then. And and there's sort of a n- not a lack of appreciation for it, but there's sort of a uh, Blase attitude towards mm-hmm. a picture even a great picture mm-hmm. you know that we that, that have to contend with as, as photographers and and I wonder for you that especially since you're in the business of making images and that you have to sometimes you know even in, even if you're dealing with a client who can appreciate the what, what's involved in adventuring the that there's sort of a lack of understanding of what's involved in making some of these photographs because they're just looking at the end result and they're just saying... Yeah, I can use this. Yeah, or I can't use this. Yeah, they didn't have to go to the mountain to get the picture themselves. Eh? Yeah. So, w- w- what's that? What's that like for you? And, and we always talk about, you know, educating, you know, the people that we work for. But, uh, you know, how does that sort of play, especially because of some of the extraordinary circumstances you have to go through for for making these pictures?
1: Well, I find it's a
0: it's a long-term thing to to build a
1: reputation, and I don't just mean whether you're a a, a gentleman or a, you know somebody who's kind of a Hard bastard. I'm talking about your association with a work and a body of work. And in my case, if I'm known for sport in general, but these sort of more extreme things in particular, like motorsport, which is, of course, one of Hemingway's true sports, and, and, uh, and adventure racing and expedition stuff, um, that the closer you are to being immediately associated with that body of work, then there comes a, a sort of an authority on the subject. And along those lines, if you're um, quite literally involved in writing a book on the sport, for example, uh, the the, uh, the egotistical thing is to say, "Well, I wrote the book on that. Why don't you look it up? What I what I said there? I mean, the point is that if you are uh, committed and passionate about a certain thing, no matter what that thing is, um, you should have some kind of informed uh, authority on it, and um, and as such therein begins a certain level of respect you know I mean if, if people know that you've, you've been up to seven summits well there's kind of an implied understanding about okay well you've accomplished something you mm-hmm. know, and you're, you're someone to be contended with and that's, that's something that doesn't happen overnight so uh, you know if you're a young photographer um you definitely have to be focused on what that thing is that is uh, passionate and driving and fascinating to you and the thing you want to be associated with and, and, and I don't know how generalists do it, people who shoot a lot of different things um, I, I'm not quite sure how they pull it off for me, I've always found it to be a niche You know, I'm, maybe it's because of the, the limit of my the extended limit of my interest, I'm pretty focused on a few things mm-hmm. totally, passionately, madly you know, obsessed with so for myself, it's a lot easier to, for people to refer to me that way. So if you're talking about the kind of casual comments about the work that people don't realize, you know, um, yeah, every, everybody experiences that. And, and you, you have to get to a point, and this might be a, an interesting thing for people to talk about. At least with my students, we get to strive in class to get to the point where they're beyond criticism. And that's a really difficult thing because you alluded to something earlier that made me think about, um, you know, we have to do what we do as photographers. This is part of our process. And in fact, uh, some other people have put it better than me that it's art as therapy, right? So no matter what your neurosis is, whatever your thing is that you're kind of figuring out, I mean, uh, Robert Bly, the poet, said once that your, uh, your first psychic wound is the wellspring of your genius. Mm-hmm. And I love that because it's not just metaphorical. It's really uh, so true for me that, you know, if I look back and, and uh, early on I lost a Grand Prix hero to a crash, you know, it's kind of almost predictable, it's like a cliche thing but I was young enough that it made such a big impression on me that you know, I made a a commitment like a, a sacred bargain, if you will, with myself that said man, I've really got to appreciate people in front of me while I still have them because mm-hmm. life is short and you know, like we just saw this week, suddenly you get a big shock that somebody young and talented is not there anymore and you had kind of come to expect that, oh, you know, we have this sort of, um, I don't know, divine providence that people we love and respect and admire are going to be around until we're old and graying. That's not true. That's not true at all. And once you get that Reminder, you know that kind of shock of guess what? You've got a sudden loss to deal with. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a direct relationship to photography and uh, that whole memento mori thing. You know, the pictures we were just looking at, yeah. the Ken Merfeld shot. I told him before I left his studio that those are the pictures I want run in my obituary. Okay, so he knows if I go tomorrow that he has to dig that up and finish curing that plate for me. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Because yeah. they're they're definitive. Okay, so that. That is really full circle for your question mm-hmm. because if I lost – and I've lost friends, first-person friends, you know, doing the things that we do best, you know, uh, whether it be at a racetrack or on a mountainside. And when that happens, of course, it's, it's a terrible thing because you – it's comprehensive. You you suffer that loss and it's a reminder of all the losses you've had before. So a lot of people will say, you know, why, why do you do this? You know, this is, this is not such a great thing for you to go to a racetrack or be on the mountains or whatever – you know, and, and I have to refer back to the best example I have, which is Hemingway. He's talking about uh, the dangerous summer of bullfighting. And he says, you know, I, I met this Yes, who's the name of the bullfighter he so adored and admired. He says, and I knew straight away that I shouldn't fall in love with him because bad things can happen so fast. And he says, but as usual, I ignored my common sense, and I fell in love with him just the same. And I totally understand that. That's to me, that is exactly my process in terms of these heroes I have, the contemporary heroes of Grand Prix drivers doing what they do and and, uh, and athletes who, any athlete who puts themselves on the line for the love of mm. their sport. So, my pictures, if I'm doing them right, if I'm practicing what I preach, which is never easy, but if, if I'm really t- striving for that, it's that these photos that I make of these guys are momentum, or something that. Long after we're gone, you know, that those are precious images, not just to me because I have an experience with, you know, someone I'm really interested in meeting and getting to know, and even on a a one-on-one basis. Well, we have a
0: mutual hero in Jay Mazel, I Uh, think, and that's where we first met. Yeah, that's right. Um, And I was wondering what was what were you hoping to get when you went to Santa Fe, Mm -hmm. and what were you surprised? With that you had received when you left,
1: I was a little nervous about it actually. I mean, despite the fact that we're here at Art Center with all kinds of you know academia, or if you want to call it that, or just colleagues, professors, and students, it's a lot easier to be you know to pretend that I know things and be a professor and you know be didactic to kids. Kids, they're twenty-somethings, but they're adults, right? And it seemed to me to be kind of like, okay, I have to, again, check my hat at the door mm-hmm. and be willing to be a complete novice, really, a really complete novice and not be like, oh, don't you know I'm an art center professor? <laughs> you know, and and just and just be a student all over again from fresh. And I, I love being a student, but I was really nervous about it. So the thing I expected was that it might be a little bit tough for me just to, Keep my mouth shut on, on <laughs>
0: everything. I know that. I know that.
1: <laughs> and, and the surprising thing is, and the beauty, of it, the beauty of it is, I, uh, I made friends. I made friends. I never, I had no idea that that place is just. It's like a, you know, a, a devotee, a pilgrim going to Mecca. You know, I mean that, that experience of finding a larger community. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I mean, here we are in this room today and i'm so glad you know but if i hadn't gone and hadn't met you i may not have ever you know realized that uh you know i've i've got an extended family that's uh, beyond the one that i think i have Mm -hmm. so that was the beautiful thing about that was going there being willing to check my ego and then coming away with wow i've got a handful of new friends who are not just casual acquaintances these are people who are like in the tribe you know, who uh, speak my language, and who see what I see in terms of beauty in the world, and I, I think that's um, priceless. That's that's something that that I would hope all of my uh, colleagues get to experience.
0: That's great. Well, the way I end the show is I ask the photographer to recommend another photographer, uh-huh. just one. I know this is hard for some people, but just one. A contemporary guy. Contemporary or from the past who you think that people should explore and check out wow
1: that's a tough question because there's there's quite a few I mean I can I can tell you about my mentor um, Paul-Henri Cahier who's a second generation uh, Formula 1 photographer his dad Bernard Cahier was the original bon vivant raconteur of Formula 1 journalist from the 50s between the two of them they've covered Formula 1 since its inception as a world championship mm-hmm. and um, Paul-Henri was a hero of mine before I was real real photographer and I uh, uh, fortunately for me he he kind of accepted the fact that i i had sort of uh, picked him out as somebody that, who was the resident artist in this sport and and someone who I should measure up to and and he's brilliant i mean he's um, he's uh i would say personally for me the the single most important mentor uh photographically speaking because of his his example um, and now, if you couldn't get him, of course, I could refer somebody else. <laughs> because he, he's only in the States one time a year for the U.S. Grand Prix at Indianapolis. and uh, um, But I could make arrangements. If you want to go to France, we could... We could uh, hey, you know. I'm always up for that. <laughs> so Paul-Henri his his uh, website is something like photof1.com. Uh, you can't miss him if you Google him because he's quite ubiquitous. But... Um, yeah, I. I if you're talking about people we can get our hands on in the near future, Those is just people for people listening oh, to the yeah, show are going to or but, gonna be able to Google yeah. them, or I'll have a link yeah, on the website so they I, can get, take a look at the You learn. know, what's crazy is I have all kinds of dead heroes that people should look up. But you know, I mean, if if you're into sport at all, um, the the greatest uh, documentary ever on the Olympics was uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's Olympia, which uh, of course is the, the stigma of being a propaganda film. But I've uh, strong feelings uh, against that being categorized as a straight-up propaganda. It is, it's love of sport, and the the images today are still influential on, on photographers. Um, uh, so if you want to talk about my influences, yeah, definitely. Reifenstahl, uh, Kappa, in terms of his guts. Mm-hmm. And uh, contemporary, I'm looking at a guy right now. Do you know Finley Mackay? No.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Finley Mackay was unknown to me until recently when he did a New York Times magazine spread on the Cohen brothers and it's perhaps the most spot on inspirational feature story I've seen and not just because I'm a Cohen brothers nut mm-hmm. um, but what they did and, and I think this is a great example that I, I give the students is it's not just about taking pretty pictures it's not just about putting celebrities in pretty pictures it's like what's above me on that how many different levels can you hit on and this Finley Mackay took this sort of ensemble cast who are in you know the Coen Brothers pictures over and over again John Turturro you know and we're talking about John Goodman and uh, Steve Buscemi and all these characters that you recognize out of this sort of ensemble cast and not only did he put them into situations that were um, significant historically to the stories they were in but he lit it just beautifully I mean it just Lighting that makes you want to cry. Mm -hmm. It's just like so sweet, the light. And the compositions are all on there. And he goes a step further. You know, it's like how many levels can you kick it up? This Finley Mackay hit it on action on top of all those things. And they're clearly the characters, the celebrities. There's all those levels of interest. Mm -hmm. And they'd just be beautiful, even if there were nobody pictures. You know, if there was just, uh, uh, you know. Real people pictures. I got to take those out. Yeah, man, it's beautiful. So I'm sure you can find it on, on Finley McKay's website and under uh, recent work.
0: But yeah. Well, thanks, Tony. You got it. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining me for another episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, please feel free to email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post the message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Until next time, this is Ivarian Exporello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out
1: this show and more great photography podcasts at PhotocastNetwork.com.
0: photocastnetwork.com.